Hello, and welcome to Political Traction. As Ontario moves into the second year of Doug Ford's second majority mandate, and yesterday's troubles are being replaced by new concerns, there's nothing like a budget to show where a government's attention is placed. If Finance Minister Peter Bethlenfalvy's 2023 budget is any indication, the last of COVID is behind us, but new challenges like healthcare and economic growth are top of mind. Add to that a global trend of economic uneasiness, making forecasting difficult for even the best economists. I'm Adam Owen, joined today by Laura Stone, Queen's Park reporter for the Globe and Mail, Colin DeMello, Queen's Park bureau chief for Global News and president of the Queen's Park Press Gallery, and Navigator's own Braden Akers, a conservative strategist and former staffer at both Queen's Park and the Prime Minister's office. Laura, Colin, and Braden joined me today to talk about the budget. This is Political Traction. So, Braden, Colin, Laura, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having me. <laughs> so on mute. Uh, Laura, Colin, I'll, I'll, I'll start. I'll start with you, and, and um, we can decide on who who answers this first. But I'm curious about what budget day is like for for journalists. Um, Laura, you're a newspaper journalist. Colin, you're a broadcast. Do your days, do your respective days, differ in significant ways? Like maybe you can walk us through what budget day is like. Well, first of all, I think Colin definitely has to shower more by virtue of being on television. Um, but no, we all we all start around the same time. We all get the documents at the same time. So yesterday, for instance, the lockup, we call it a lockup because the documents are under embargo. And we can't release them before the finance minister stands up in the house to speak. We get the documents around nine o'clock. So we all came to our offices at Queen's Park for that time. And Colin, as the president of the press gallery, actually walked around. Aren't you the president of the press gallery, Colin? Yes. Oh, okay. You did a weird head tilt. Um, it was a, it was a, it was a thing <laughs> for acknowledging. To Colin. Yeah, he walked around and actually delivered them to us, accompanied by, was it an OPP officer, Colin? Yeah, there's legislative assembly officers in the OPP who, you know, have to uh, walk with me um, with the budget to each individual office because, they, you know, we even asked this year, can the journalists come to one room, the government house leader's office and actually pick up the budget documents? And they said, no, no, because they can't just be wandering around Queen's Park, God forbid, you know, somebody yeah. might happen to spot the budget and and find out all of the non-details in the budget uh, before <laughs> it actually becomes public. Um, but, but yeah, the OPP and a legislative security officer, as well as somebody from uh, the finance minister's office, accompanied me yesterday as we kind of went from door to door to door, hand delivering the budget to every single one. And it, I think it also then reinforces the idea, we see you, the OPP sees you, it's an embargoed document. You know, you are not allowed to breathe a word of it uh, until the minister starts speaking. And they take it really seriously. But kind of the new the new modern twist is that we also get the documents electronically. So if we have other reporters, there's a virtual lockup, too. And that's that was sort of a pandemic thing that's been left over that actually, I think, works really well. And no one's broken the embargo and there have, hasn't been a problem with it. But people get the documents virtually now as well. So they can read them. And then even if they're not at Queen's Park, they can read them from home or their office. And and they respect the same embargo as well. Is it like a like a Marvel script where like your name is watermarked on the on the back of it? <laughs> I wish it was that cool. I think it's just like <laughs> a printed label. 
It's a sticker. It's a it. sticker on the front that just says Laura Stone, Globe and Mail, Colin DeMello, Global News, um, and 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 that one. The 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 documents that we get online are actually watermarked, embargoed. So you know you can you can tell that these are actual documents that they may have had access to or or had been working on. In fact, one of the documents we got on Budget Day, part of the documents were actually redacted, and I don't think the government knew I, I, we didn't have the time to really kind of fight that battle with them but they gave us a redacted document so it, it just goes to show that sometimes the documents that they're providing to us digitally are the ones that they've been circulating internally as well which is kind of nice that we get you know access to what their confidential documents are actually are uh but a redacted document under embargo on budget day is certainly not nice the the direction i thought we were going to be going in yesterday i didn't notice that but you know details it was almost like we foi'd the budget document and got everything right. back redacted which would have made more sense but then so, just to, to finish off the day sorry it's 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 but it's a race against time because we also we have we get the documents we have a technical briefing a couple hours later and then we actually have the press conferences with the finance minister and the opposition at two o'clock that are also embargoed until the minister stands up in force. So we're all sort of racing to read the documents try to figure out what's in there you know find the story ask our questions and then get comment. And we have to have something that comes out immediately at four or four or five, whenever the minister stands up. I would also say, so our budget days actually start for, for, you know, the parents of young children like Laura and I, our budget days actually start at like six o'clock in the morning because you have to get to Queens Park much sooner, much earlier in the day than you would typically be able to. So you really have to start like you know, getting the kids out the door as quickly <laughs> as you can um, and really putting some hustle in them because kids are always slow. Uh, and then paying attention to see, you know, has anyone gotten any budget day leak that's out there. A lot of us sometimes might be doing radio hits, TV hits uh, at seven o'clock in the morning or so just to kind of tee up on, on morning shows what the actual budget day might look like with a lot of guesstimating based on what you may have heard uh, the finance minister and the premier say in the past. Um, and, and then, you know, Laura's right. I mean, it is such a compressed day, but there's so much going on. But those moments where we all get together, where, you know, we're asking questions of the finance minister or we have a technical briefing with the uh, deputy minister are great ways for me and for others to kind of suss out what everyone else is working on. Right. Like what page did I miss and what little nugget did I overlook? This really gives me an opportunity to then kind of double check and triple check and make sure that I have what everyone else has. So we're all on the same page. Braden, you have some experience in staff. Well, you have a lot of experience in staff at, at all levels of government. What What is budget day like for, for staff on the other side? Well, it can be really fun, but it can also be really, really awful. Like it depends completely on if your ministry or your department is like a focus in the budget. And unlike Laura and Colin, you don't get free pizza. That's what I would also say. <laughs> they they get food delivered to their rooms. They get pampered. Political staff don't get it. Oh, oh, we do the pampering. We do the pampering ourselves because there's no government funded lockup. We can't, you know. We, we, we can't um, get government funded food. So the press gallery funds our own lunch. I'm, well, I'm just anticipating. Sorry, press gallery I'm... funded. There is no political staffer funded lunch. That's what I will say. So um, usually like I've seen it done both ways. Like I had in the Ford government, I had a pretty good idea of what was going to be in the budget before 
I showed up in the room. But uh, in the Harper government, I can remember going to lockup and having no idea whatsoever what would be mentioned in my for my department and having to write actual lines out in finance just telling you what your, you know, your department's initiatives are going to be for the next year. And then you having to write lines and, and then you're on deck to respond to whatever issues you might have that's in the budget um, that day. So Colin and Laura will be calling you and like being like, hey, what's going on here? Did you actually cut this? And you're like, I don't know. I just found out 20 minutes ago. And you have to figure out like how to respond effectively for the government. So it can be a bit hairy slash annoying. So like it, the best thing is like not having anything in the budget from a political staff point of view, and then your day's great. But if you're, you know, a big focus, it's not so good. I'm uh, I'm glad that we clarified that the government doesn't pay for pizza uh, just out of concern for what your your Twitter replies would be like if uh, if it got out that uh, that the government was buying uh, buying your food. So good good clarification there. Um, Colin, Minister Bethenfalvy has characterized this as a safe and prudent budget, uh, but it's also the largest budget in our province's history at, at $204 billion. How, how does that square? So I actually went back to the 2019 budget just out of curiosity to see if they had done any kind of long-term projection. And in 2019, they had actually only projected to spend in this fiscal year. Where is it? $173 billion, which is $31 billion less than what they actually spent in 2023-24. But I think this is largely a reflection of the fact that COVID-19 and, and those extraordinary deficits that they needed to run at the time has really kind of inflated the budget and risen everything. You know, I mean, this government is incredibly sensitive after that 2019 budget to how they're going to be viewed as um, you, you know, from stakeholders and from the general public, right? They don't want to be seen as a as a government that's just slashing and burning all the time, especially because that 2019 budget was so scarring, led to so much blowback. Even in 2020, in the middle of the pandemic, they were still rolling back items from the 2019 budget. Um, I thought one of the most interesting things was how inflation has kind of proved to be a bit of a double-edged sword for this government. On one hand, Inflation, you know, has meant it's so expensive for us to put food in the table and buy goods and services, but it's also sent an extraordinary amount of money into Queens Park coffers, so much so that they can balance the budget starting in 2024 to a tune of like just $200 million uh, in terms of a surplus. But it also means the cost of building things, which this is a government that wants to build. It's their, you know, it it is really their raison d'etre. Um, building things has become so much more expensive. They had a 10-year capital plan to build roads, bridges like the Highway 413, uh, subways, hospitals, etc. That grew in less than a year by $25 billion. And the finance minister said yesterday, yeah, look, you know, supply chain issues, inflation, the cost of, um, you know, transporting goods and services, everything has kind of risen. So, it's it's not necessarily that they're spending the $204 billion on new things. It's just they have to spend that money to keep up with all the things they've already committed to. So uh, maybe that's why we don't see a lot of new commitments yesterday in infrastructure, right? Like usually the, the budget is the time that you roll out these fancy new 
plans or buildings or infrastructure projects. And this one is largely absent. Like they're touting previous investments from their last budget. budget. Like we didn't see a lot of new fancy new um, items that you would normally expect on a budget day. Well, and what we're starting to see too is as they're handing out the contracts, specifically for like subways and tunneling and all of that, as they're handing out the contracts, they're finding out that those contracts are much more expensive than what they originally promised. And and that's really kind of inflating uh, inflating this bottom line. But they're not going to stop building, right? Because uh, they're they're betting on the economic um, the the economic spinoffs and the the return on investment. So they're not going to back down on that plan. Now I want to see in the next few years how much that's going to grow, right? It'll probably grow by another like ten billion next year. Yeah, it, it seems like the government is taking an approach that I've often expected to hear from more progressive the, the progressive side of the spectrum which is we're not giving money putting money directly into people's pockets we're building up the the the, the economy by investing in it um which is kind of surprising for this government laura i know your, your colleague andrew coin this morning called this a, a kathleen Wynne budget which was was pretty funny um colin mentioned that affordability is an issue for ontarians um and he pointed out you know we didn't see these direct interventions uh, pocket around pocketbook issues, uh, mm -hmm. besides stuff that's already been announced, like childcare, uh, license plates, uh, gas tax cuts, um, like understanding that just writing checks to people would uh, could fuel inflation, which they don't want to do. How, how will the government show voters that they are addressing pocketbook issues with this budget? Because that, that is something that's top of mind for people. Yeah, it's a really good question. And actually, last week we had, you know, the government did some pre-announcements to the budget. They had two days where they they announced things that were in the budget, uh, a manufacturing um, tax cut and money for skilled trades. And those ended up being probably two of the biggest or, you know, a hand, two among the handful of the biggest things that they had in the budget. So they really didn't have kind of those shiny things that you're talking about that that or easy, I think, for the everyday person to understand. And it, I think it was surprising. And they did take criticism for that. But it's interesting, you know, when you talk about Andrew Coy, I think he called it a, a Doug Wynn or a Kathleen Ford budget. Right. Um, you know, so they're, you know, and then they had others, they did have the opposition criticizing them for not, not doing enough to help people with rental assistance or, uh, you know, subsidized housings and things like that. So, you know, you have some of maybe the more, um, fiscally conservative side saying that they're spending too much. And then, of course, you always have the uh, the opposition on the progressive side saying they're spending too little. So they probably view that as a win. Um, but it, I think that, you know, I think the way that the finance minister characterized it yesterday was we're doing a lot of these long term things over several years and it's not a one and done program. So they talk about, you know, their housing plan. I know Collins alluded to the fact that they're not actually building as much housing as they'd like to because of economic um, conditions. But I think they're talking about more of those long-term investments and not anything that's targeted right now to, to people's pocketbook issues, but they're kind of creating the economy for people to, to get jobs and keep jobs, investing in the skilled trades. They have more of a long-term vision, I think, than maybe you would expect from from a government that used to really like kind of those shiny headlines of things that they were were giving people they did they didn't that was really absent from this budget they're they're four they're sorry they're one year into a four-year mandate with a majority government they're pretty far away from an election do you think if this was a different year 
closer to an election, we would see those, you know, checks going out in the mail, uh, tax breaks 100%. going to going to people. A hundred percent. I think, you know, we, we saw them allude to in the budget as well, a review of the tax code. I think I think because they're so early in their mandate and they've already kind of cataloged what they plan to do over the next four years, I think they're certainly I would be shocked if they didn't have some you know, big tax breaks or or more kind of targeted measures in year three and four as they head into the next election. I think you're absolutely right that, that that's probably what they'd save it for as the province is in a better fiscal position in the next two years too. They'll, they'll be more apt to do yeah. that as well. But it's also a complicated time, right? I mean, if you start sending money out and direct support payments, what are people going to do? They're most likely going to go out and spend those things in the economy at the same time when the Bank of Canada is trying to keep inflation as low as possible. And it hasn't really kind of bent in the way or at the speed that they're hoping that it'll it'll bend. So I don't think the government is necessarily looking at uh, making that issue worse. And I think you, you, you always have to Think about Peter Bethlenfalvy and his background. I mean, he used to work at the the credit rating agencies during the 2008 financial crisis. Like this is an individual who is acutely aware of kind of that balancing act that you have to strike. And if you kind of depress or pull one lever, you're going to have some unintended consequences. And I don't think he wants to be the person who you know creates some kind of an, an inflationary pressure once again, right? So I think that's one of the reasons why they just said, okay leave things status quo um, because you know, there's not an election around the, uh, around the corner and there's no need to kind of make things worse when it comes to inflation right now. You're right, but the, it, it's off-brand for Premier Ford, who's who's for the little guy. And always he's always talking about these kind of incremental measures of we're giving you 90 bucks back for this. We, 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 uh, you know, waive the fees on the license stickers. Like he loves those, those $50 back here, a hundred dollars back there measures. And they really didn't have any of those in this budget. They, they, in fact, they just pointed to previous ones that they'd, they'd already announced. Yeah. And as a conservative and a taxpayer, I'm really glad not in the, the budget, just as FYI. And I would also point out, like, Queen's Park is, un unlike Parliament Hill and Justin Trudeau, there is no money machine at Queen's Park where they can just print more money. They actually have fiscal constraints that prevent them from doing this direct support, these direct support measures that we're talking about right now. And, and Radham, you're completely right. They are inflationary, right? But but the other thing I would point out is, like, if, if you're looking for transformative change, now rather than um, you know, down the road, this is actually now the time to do it in terms of budget planning. Um, early on, a man, early on in a mandate is when you make the controversial decisions about maybe rolling back spending in certain areas, or tightening, or launching bold plans or bold reforms to the healthcare sector to bring more private sector involvement in and alleviate some of the pressures that are on taxpayers. We didn't really see that yesterday. Um, I think partly because you know, growth isn't there in the private sector in the next year. So it doesn't make sense really to, to roll back the spending when we're expecting maybe 0% growth next year. That's basically what the budget pro projects. Um, you know, even as a diehard fiscal conservative, I would say no. But there are some good things. I disagree with Andrew Quinn. Like, I, I was pretty happy. If, like, there's almost a secret surplus here. And with the $4 billion contingency fund, which if goes untouched, we will have a surplus this year in the province of Ontario. And the, and the government actually didn't really tout that, which I found interesting from a comms perspective. I would have done it. I would have pointed it out. 
But, but Braden, they also didn't uh, budget exactly how much more money they're going to have to give teachers and how much more money they're going to have to give nurses, which I assume uh, we asked the finance minister about this on budget day, right? How much money are they setting aside specifically for uh, all of the education sectors? Because, um, you know, what did QP get? QP got about three and a half percent in terms of an increase. Uh, I know that the teachers are looking for that kind of baseline increase as well, uh, keeping up with QP. And the nurses are looking to make up for three years of Bill 124, all the pandemic, um, you know, work that they put in and the money they didn't get. So that four billion dollars might be eaten up pretty quickly. But I like the I yeah, like the, go. I right. like the oh. sound of secret surplus. <laughs> Maybe I'm too too hopeful. I don't know. I I was just happy, like in terms of that that surplus being there and the the how small the deficit was. I was expecting something much larger. To be so, honest, well, so maybe it's next year they can buy us pizza. <laughs> it's funny that that like from a conservative perspective is what makes you so happy but from you know, the progressive opposition perspective that's what just drives them nuts that they're not spending more and they want to see more money in healthcare and raises right now like that is what they criticize but but you know for like the conservative supporters views that's the positive of this budget and it's not just that, though, Laura, like the independent officers, like the Auditor General and the Financial Accountability Officer have both raised issues with these large contingency funds that they squirrel away because they're, they, you know, the FAO basically says this doesn't follow standard accounting practices um, and, and says, you know, these are all unallocated funds that they don't know exactly what the government is doing with it. And he called on the government, uh, the FAO did for more transparency. The government doesn't really like the FAO and they don't really pay attention <laughs> to what he says. So I don't think that that necessarily is going to dictate how, how they go. But, you know, it's it's the opposition. It's the independent officers of the legislature who all kind of say there's there's something, um, you know, sketchy about these the the, the secret surplus. <laughs> now, what they did do in this budget, though, is they did spend more on mental health and new, new money. That was like, I think one of their biggest, if not their biggest investment. And they also accelerated previously promised funding for healthcare. They're spending that faster. And so I think that is probably to assuage the critics who are, and and obviously the healthcare sector that needs the money now, and they've got some money now from the federal government too, but they are they are at least speeding up the, the healthcare funding. And of course that will never be enough for some people. And there was, despite what I said, there is, I think there was some action yesterday, or at least some replay of some actions that have taken to involve the private sector in the healthcare system. I would expect more moving forward. I, I, I think the time is now from a strategist political perspective. I, I would want to be rolling out these, these types of measures now. I think that later on in the mandate, we might see some of those cost saving measures, especially if we're seeing 0% growth next year which again is what is projected. Laura, you raised an interesting point around some of these um, line items on here that are typically progressive causes, uh, but the average person doesn't necessarily know, you know how much $20 million versus $200 million buys. So you see $202 million for homelessness prevention, indigenous supportive housing, like that's not those are traditionally like pretty um, mental health. Th those are tend to be, I guess, stereotypically, those are things that progressives uh, mm. care uh, care more about. Uh, but you know, I don't. I sure like I don't know how much 
$200 million buys. And if that's a I lot or did. not enough. Yeah. I wish <laughs> I had that knowledge. Um, yeah. And they also have, they also have a significant chunk for um, children leaving the child wealth, uh, youth leaving the child welfare system. And they, they increase the age at which they, you know, provide services for people. They think it was from 21 to 23. Uh, so you have, it's true. You have some of these causes that are maybe more typically um, progressive that they've championed now. They also they they've all they're also increasing a um, a tax credit or a, a income supplement for low income seniors. I mean, these are like it's not like conservative governments wouldn't touch these issues at all. I do think kind of the homelessness piece and some of these other mental health supports, they're they're sort of used. They roll into some of the demands that cities have made, and we saw the the finance minister allude to these. And when asked why aren't you doing more for Toronto, why aren't you bailing out the city, he talked about some of these programs, homelessness. Homelessness supports, for instance, as something that will help cities is not necessarily directed towards the city, but it's a program that, you know, urban people would probably use more. So, you know, these are kind of ways around maybe some of the reasoning that they're not spending more money to bail out municipalities, for instance. Right. And and that's a very good segue to talk about cities uh, and, and Toronto specifically. Um there's no COVID bailout for Toronto in this budget. That's something that that we uh, we heard a lot yesterday. Um, Ford has basically said that he wants to uh, audit the uh, finances of big cities before he writes more checks to them to make sure that they're spending money. That gave me uh, flashbacks to the Rob Ford era where it's, uh, they they always said, "Well, they're just spending too much money, and and we're going to find efficiencies." Um, how how will this budget affect the upcoming mayoral by election in Toronto? Well, well my fate. Oh, so go, you go, go ahead. ahead. No, no, you, no, you no, no. Okay, we'll both go. <laughs> well, I'll go first. So yeah. my favorite is when the premier says he's not weighing into the mayoral race, and then he just goes on a rant about how the next mayor better not raise taxes, and we better have a fiscally responsible mayor and oh no lefties, but I'm staying out of it. Mark Saunders is a great guy. <laughs> anyway, I just love it. Um because he just cannot help himself. Um, but I think it will loom large. I mean, I think there's 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 so many people running, first of all, and and they all kind of approach it on from different perspectives, of course, but someone like a Josh Matlow, whose first um, order of business or what he announced in, in, as he launched his campaign was a plan to raise taxes in order to pay for better services. That's going to be key to his, his campaign. And I'm sure some others will have other ideas. I mean, I think, you know, the city of Toronto's books, how to how to improve services and kind of like the crumbling infrastructure. I mean, I think that it's going to be a, a major issue in the election. I think that the budget will be as well and the relationship with the province. I, I don't think you can get around the fact that that is going to be a, a key issue in the mayoral race. Colin? I, I think what could be interesting is, you know, um, Doug Ford is a polarizing person when it comes to the city of Toronto, right? Toronto's had so many ups and downs with uh, Doug Ford, both as a city councillor or a mayoral candidate, then premier with elections being uh, meddled with. And so, you know, by, by not giving that money to the city of Toronto, Doug Ford then makes himself a bit of a foil uh, for progressives to run against, right? Um, as opposed to just running on the issues central to Toronto, now it, you know Doug Ford has kind of given them the opportunity to say, "Look, I'm I, I'm going to be much more 
um, much more hardened when it comes to the provincial government. They're not giving us enough. And it's kind of like, you know, uh, putting somebody in place who would be the antithesis to Doug Ford, not somebody like John Tory, who worked very well with Doug Ford because he kind of understood how to how to uh, how to play that game and get strong mayor powers as a, as a result as well. So, I, I mean, it, it will definitely loom large, though, as, as Laura said, because ultimately that's going to be a big question, right? What is going to be your solution to filling this massive budgetary gap? And it could be, you know, gaps going forward if the province uh, now sees this as a, as a reason to stop, you know, always coming to Toronto's rescue. But if, if progressives are now looking for a, a, a lightning rod of an opponent, this may give them the opportunity to run against Doug Ford, as Justin Trudeau did uh, in a previous election, rather than running against the field of candidates that are, you know, right now declared. I, I think the premier would happily take that on for the record. And he should. He should. It benefits him politically. And, and not only that, it benefits the people of Ontario. And it's the best policy decision ever. Like the, the taxpayers of Kenora, North Bay and Barrie should not be bailing out the taxpayers of Toronto. It's just that plain and simple. Right. Like it is absolutely ridiculous that the city of Toronto every single year comes to the not to sound like the premier right now comes to the. <laughs> the province a cap in hand begging for bailouts when they themselves are paying little to no property taxes compared to everyone else across the province it's just a fundamental fairness issue that the city needs to figure out and if the premier wants to lead the charge on that it benefits him politically in all kinds of writings in the gta all kinds of writings in the 905 and all kinds of writings across the province so i hope that, that actually happens colin i hope you're, that's brave, brave, you're Braden, are you are you suggesting that there's an inconsistency with downtown progressives not paying taxes? <laughs> I am. And unfortunately, I'm being recorded, so I can't tell you my true views on this. But I do I think it's a spending problem as well as a revenue problem. But like, but uh, it, it's, you know, the city of Toronto needs to figure that out on their own. So, but it, it, I think it really does open the door to a progressive candidate in the city of, in the May, like a, a mayoral progressive opportunity i guess as someone because as much as the premier only acts as a foil so would it so would a progressive candidate and people who are looking to maybe express their displeasure with what the premier is doing might look at this as an opportunity and john tory was kind of an, an exceptional case in that he was super popular and he was going for this historic third term and people almost just you know out of habit went and voted for him but i think it, i think it is truly kind of like a wide open race now and so there could be that opportunity for someone who's completely different um and who benefits from who the premier and who the government is uh provincially i think you're totally right laura like i, I think that <laughs> so I think what I said is not popular in toronto and, and <laughs> it's a bit for uh uh progressive uh a progressive candidate to run against the premier as colin has pointed out and yeah it's always it's always a good political strategy to uh offer things uh offer nice things that you don't have to pay for Braden, pulling up uh, two orders of magnitude um, and looking at the federal government, we're going to have a federal a federal budget next week. Uh, the province and the feds share a lot of the same priorities, uh, economic growth being one, uh, EV and critical minerals production uh, being another. Uh, looking ahead to next week's federal budget, do you think we'll see any similarities uh, between these two budgets? 
I think where you're going to see differences, I'm going to talk about differences because that's easier. Um, <laughs> and maybe other people can talk about similarities. I think I think we'll see tax increases from the feds. Um, I think that we'll see, uh, they maybe I'll touch on uh, similarities too. They care a lot about EVs, as you pointed out. They care a lot about criti critical minerals. So we'll see some of those themes uh, um, carry over into the Fed, Fed budget. Um, obviously, their fiscal situation is far different than the provinces, and, and this is, uh, a, I think, a weird time, at least in my political memory, where the federal government is actually in far worse fiscal shape than the provinces. In, you know, in the Harper years, it was the exact opposite. Uh, we saw Ontario really struggling and the federal government, uh, you know, having a, a lot of fiscal room, and now it's, it's flipped the other way around. So I actually rather be, well, you didn't ask this question, but I'm going to answer it. <laughs> I'd rather be Peter uh, Peter Ruffin probably than Christia Freeland um, delivering a budget because I think she has a far tougher task ahead of her than than the province did uh, this week. She also has a much more popular uh, opposition to face yes. up against, and a far more effect. I'm biased, as everyone knows on this call. A far more effective opposition as well. Uh, Pierre is a very strong conservative leader, um, and uh, he's holding their feet to the fire on many, many fronts, especially the affordability issue, which he, you know, ran very successfully on. Uh, to become conservative leader, um, and uh, I, I wouldn't expect him to relent. Um, he's seen significant jumps in the polls um, over the since he became leader. The Tories have been nearly consistently ahead of the Liberals, um, and you know there's the numbers have changed fundamentally here in Ontario as well, um, and they're they're leading in some cases, and and that's problematic for them. Um, you know, there's other things besides affordability that that are, are impacting the Liberals. Obviously, I think the the two outlets that are on this call are covering lots of other interesting things that are happening, and that's obviously impacting their numbers as well. Like what? Whatever could be happening. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it's really good news. I'm reading it attentively. So anyway. <laughs> well, Colin, Laura, and Brayden, thank you so much for, for joining us today. This was a really great chat. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for having us. It was fun. Political Traction is powered by Navigator, Canada's leading high-stakes public affairs firm. Our show was edited by Holden Wine and produced by Thomas Ashcroft, Matthew Barnes, Jeff Costin, Jenny McElwain, and Jahan Mohammed. I'm Adam Owen. We'll see you next time.